On this episode of the LNL podcast, I've got to be honest with you up front. This is an episode between me and TJ Darty, our guest alone. Brandon's actually in the room listening, but I messed up his mic somehow, so you can't hear him at all. So what I've done is transcribed what he said, and I've recorded it myself and put it in there so it's a seamless track and you won't even know. That said, obviously I'm a rookie. Forgive my mistake. Won't happen again. On today's episode of the LNL Podcast, Brandon and I get to talk with T.J. Darty. He's a Ph.D. student at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and we get to talk to him about one of his favorite Baptist historians, and that is Patrick Hughes Mel, affectionately called the Mel Man. Don't miss out on this episode. So I'd like to welcome everyone once again to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and I'm alongside my right-hand man, Brandon Askew. And today we have a thrilling guest to offer you, and that is TJ Darty. Now, me saying offer you a guest sounds a little weird, but we are going to talk with him about the subject of Patrick Hughes Mel, who he calls the Mel Man. And we're really interested in this topic because I think many of you who are love Baptist history and those maybe who aren't uh, as informed probably aren't super up to date on who Patrick Hughes-Mell is. So TJ, I think, is your man. This is one of his favorite uh, theologians to study, and we're going to learn a lot from him. Now, before I kick it over to TJ to introduce himself to all of our listeners, I do want to make note of the fact that TJ is actually a podcaster himself, and I think he records with Lance Burroughs on the Reformed Informants podcast. So I've had the pleasure of listening to several episodes. Highly recommend it. I think you all should check it out, especially those who are more interested in Reformed theology for what I think they say is the good of the church. So TJ, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit to us so we can kind of get to know who you are. Sure. Um, well, obviously glad to be here. Glad to be a part of this. And as you mentioned, Jordan, uh, yes, Lance Burroughs is my co-host, a good friend of mine, and we do uh, the Reformed Informants podcast. But aside from when I'm not podcasting, I, I live in uh, Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas. Um, I serve on staff as a missions pastor currently uh, at a church down here and uh, married to my wife, Chloe. And we have a new little girl who's about, uh, I guess, seven weeks old now, uh, Blakely. And so uh, that's, that's pretty much wrapping up my, uh, most of my time. Uh, when I'm able to study, I'm working on my PhD, finishing up the PhD in the uh, dissertation phase now at Southwestern here in Fort Worth and, uh, finishing that up in systematic theology, uh, with an emphasis and a minor emphasis on Baptist history. So that's what brought me to Mel. And, uh, that's what brings me to this conversation. Hope to be able to contribute a little bit today. That's great stuff, TJ. So I hear, though, that you were also pretty good at sports growing up. So tell me a little bit about that. Well, uh, I fooled a lot of people for a long time to thinking I was good enough to play college baseball. And so I did. Uh, I played I played college ball at the University of Kentucky. Uh, that's where I did my undergrad work and uh, majored in math, was going to go off into the, the world of sports and, and business. And a uh, guy called me to ministry. And so I jumped ship and, and abandoned that and um, transitioned into ministry and um, it was it was a fun part of a fun season of life. I loved it. Um, loved sports. Still still follow. Of course, I'm a Braves fan and had to watch my Braves get dismantled by the Cardinals, which I was uh, not happy about. But uh, we don't need to talk about that right now. Yeah, right. Well, it's totally fine because I just watched the Cardinals get completely dismantled by the Nationals. That said, TJ and I, uh, we both overlapped for a year while we were at Liberty. I think you were doing your master's there. And, of course, while we were there, we played some softball together. You know, in those days, I was basically a recruiter. So I saw that this guy played SEC baseball, and I had to snag him to play yeah, with us. Yeah, 
sorry to disappoint you that uh, when you found out that I was the academic guy on the team, but uh, you know, I got to, I got to play a little bit and uh, it was a fun season of life. So TJ, were you converted in college or was that just when you felt as some sort of call to ministry and decided to go into seminary? Oh, um, yeah, I, I was not converted in college. That's a great question. I, that's when I, um, I, I often tell people that that's when I surrendered to the call to ministry. Uh, I believe that maybe I had been called for quite some time leading up to that. Um, grew up in a Christian home um, with, with loving parents and, and came to faith in Christ at a young age um, and wrestled with the idea of vocational ministry and preaching the gospel um, even as early as as early you know, late elementary school. I'm, I'm, I'm interested. I'm trying to figure this thing out, but didn't really sort through it until after I graduated and, uh, God began shutting doors that should by all accounts have been open. Um, everything in my life pointed to, you should get this job offer. You should have this opportunity. You should have this. And they just kept closing in my face. And, uh, I turned around, uh, on the mission field, I went on a short-term trip and God, uh, used that to open my eyes to the calling he had placed on my life to preach uh, the gospel. And so uh, from that point forward, it became very clear to me. And um, it was uh, certainly God's call uh, for me moving forward. So certainly now I serve as a missions pastor, but I know that I'm called to preach and uh, to lead a, a church in that regard. And so I'm pr- in that preparation stage, but also serving uh, while I'm preparing as well. Well, I have no doubt those people at your current church are blessed by your ministry and the future ones will be as well. But I do want to go ahead and shift gears a little bit here and get right into Patrick Hughes-Mell. So for those who are unfamiliar with him or may not know who he is, why don't you give us a little short synopsis of his background, his context, and what he's bringing to the table for us? Yeah, um, I often tell people that Patrick Hughes-Mell is the most important Southern Baptist you've never heard of. Um, he was a, uh, 19th century. So the 1800s in the, uh, in the South, he, he was a Georgia man. Um, and he was, uh, kind of, he had, he had multiple, uh, ministries and where he served. So he was a pastor. Uh, he served, um, 33 years at, at one church, 28 in another, 10 in another. They overlapped a lot. And he had multiple churches that he, um, pastored and they were often, uh, th- that area of Georgia was called Mel's kingdom. And so he was a pastor, um, in the South, he had such a wide influence. He was also a professor. Um, he was a, uh, um, a professor of ancient languages at Mercer University, uh, ended up at the University of Georgia, and he was um, ended up being the chancellor there. And on top of all of that, he also served in the convention. So he was the Georgia Baptist Convention clerk. He was the Georgia Baptist Convention president. And ultimately, he was the Southern Baptist Convention president for 17 total years, uh, the longest tenured president in SBC history. Um, he's been uh, labeled as the Prince of Parliamentarians because he was such an adequate um, leader of the convention. And so um, he's a contemporary with with uh, more familiar names like uh, Boyce and Broadus and Dag and that that bunch. But Mel has kind of been forgotten. And so one of the things that I've been able to, to do in my studies is try to uncover and discover him a little bit and try to make him more accessible uh, to the people. That's good stuff. So you're talking about uncovering him. What would you say are some of the particular things that are worth uncovering that should be promoted and should be engaged with as far as Mel goes? Yeah, I think uh, that's one of the things that I'm, as a systematic theology guy, um, that's the thing I'm most interested in. I want to learn about Mel's theology and his contributions in that way. Um, One one author who um, has written a little bit on him, uh, Paul Basden, he he made the observation, and I think this, he kind of in his observation, he was being a little bit critical, but I think it was, 
I think it was a high compliment. He said that Mel was not innovative in his theology, but rather was a popularizer of traditional Baptist orthodoxy. And at the end of the day, that's who I want to be. I want to be the guy that's uh, that's making known orthodox theology, and that's kind of who uh, Mel was. He was not innovative in his theology. He was not uh, unique. He wasn't bringing a whole lot of newness to the table, but he was uh, confessional, and he was um, very, very knowledgeable in traditional Baptist theology, and that's what he held to. Now, Mel wrote... Um, on two main doctrinal areas. One was the doctrine of salvation or soteriology. uh, And the other main one that he wrote on and he wrote a lot on was the doctrine of the church or ecclesiology. And so he, he provides a lot of, of um, a lot of perspective into those two particular areas. And we could dive into those if you want, or we can just kind of fly by, but, but basically those are the two areas where he wrote uh, most of his, uh, where most of his writings fall under. Yeah, I'm actually really curious about his ecclesiological uh, contributions. Can you tell us about those? Uh, yeah, so Mel wrote, um, he wrote on the subject of baptism, which many 19th century Southern Baptists did. Um, he was, he was uh, debating and arguing with um, many Methodists and Presbyterians in the areas where he ministered. And so the, the issue of paedo-baptism or infant baptism came up frequently. And at a um, revival service, Mel had been preaching the gospel and many were coming to Christ. And so they began to baptize them. And before he would baptize them, he would explain the Baptist uh, doctrine of, of, of baptism. And in doing this repeatedly, um, it, it, many church members came to him and said, hey, could you preach a sermon on this? We want to hear it you know, formally um, elucidated from the pulpit. So he goes to the pulpit, he preaches, and many church members came to him and said, hey, could you write this down so that we have a way to study it later? And so he wrote this extensive track on, uh, or book on baptism, the mode of baptism being immersion, the subjects of baptism being those who have been converted and those who are regenerated. Um, secondly, he wrote an extensive work on Baptist church polity. And he just basically runs through the way that a Baptist church is structured um, with pastors, uh, the roles of deacons, the function of the church, how Baptists should interact with one another in regard to the Lord's Supper, close communion, those types of things. But the most influential and I think the, the most helpful thing that he did was he wrote on corrective church discipline. And uh, this has been maybe the most fascinating aspect of Mel's work um, for me in my studies um, as he is responding to landmarkism. Now, I'm not sure if you guys have, you know, jump in, correct me. Have you guys discussed landmark Baptists at all on your, on your podcast yet? We have not. So why don't you go ahead and give us a short little synopsis of what that is? Yeah, the, the landmark Baptists, um, they, they had they had quite a run um, in the 19th and into, into the 20th century. And landmark Baptists, I'll just summarize it this way. They held uh, strongly to the thought that Baptist churches and Baptist ecclesiology was biblical um, to the point to where any non-Baptist church was not a true church at all. And landmarkers would go all the way back and say that there is a a definitive uh, line of Baptist churches that have existed from the time of Christ until the present day. And um, what would you add to that, Jordan? Anything that I'm missing there? I'm trying to over you know, summarize broad strokes. No, and I think that's perfectly fine. I think what you said is spot on. Really, I think the, the core idea is simply that they 
are thinking that there's this golden chain from the apostles to this current day. So I think if you look at the Reformation, you see a lot of the early Baptists having this sort of uh, crisis of faith where they think, man, my baptism mm-hmm. not, must not be valid anymore uh, because it wasn't done by someone who was actually a Baptist. And it creates this great, um, I guess, I don't know, some sort of internal crisis about it. But I think the point is the fact that they are really putting such a premium on baptism that it has to be done in this right and proper mode that only those who have done it in that way have done it correctly. And if that's true, uh, then you have to trace your lineage back through these people who have always been doing it in this correct way for there to be an actual uh, correct understanding of theology. It's almost as if people could never get anything wrong, and if they did, then there's something completely uh, outlandish with the faith, so we need to have an unbroken chain. Yeah, and, and yeah, the landmarkers, their name comes from the biblical concept of don't move the ancient landmark. Um, you know, the, the language of, of it's in the Proverbs, but also in Joshua. And so the idea is we, do, we have been here from the beginning. Let's not divert from what our fathers taught us, what our previous forefathers taught them, and so on and so forth. And so it, it lends to the idea of almost as if apostolic successionism. Um, now they would deny that type of, of supernatural power, but in essence, that's what they're tending towards, um, because they hold so strongly to those tenets of the Baptist faith. Now, landmarkers were very high and I think they got this right. They're very high in the local church. Uh, they believe that the local church was the, um, God instituted, um, mechanism for the proclamation of the gospel and the administration of the ordinances and all those things. They were right about that, but um, they veered off on some some of those areas that I would disagree with them on, and this is probably not the venue to discuss that. Um, but but Mel but Mel writes in uh, in response to a land a case of church discipline against a popular the most popular uh, landmarker J R Graves, and so Mel's contribution um, in in the world of church discipline was widely widely influential and helped kind of curb some of that landmark influence. Um, around the time of the Civil War, so really, really important name, really important Baptist, and um, and often forgotten, sadly. But he has so much that uh, he's taught me as I've studied him. So, if someone wants to get a copy of Patrick Hughes Mel's work, is there actually a way to do that? Are there popular re redone books of these? Uh, so, Forgotten Books has republished some of his um, some of his older works. Um, his son. Patrick Usmel Jr. wrote a biography that is very accessible, um, really, really informative, has all the idiosyncrasies of his life, fascinating figure. Um, Tom Nettles has republished some of his work. Um, his most famous and probably most influential work is a short, short book uh, called Predestination and the Saints Perseverance. And so he's dealing with um, someone who attacks the, the concept of biblical predestination. And so he argues for that concept from a Reformed, particular uh, Baptist perspective, and uh, it was really, really helpful. Uh, Corrective Church Discipline was actually republished by Dever in a book on church polity with a collection of of uh, church discipline writings throughout Baptist history. And so, his you can get your hands on some of his work, um, but you gotta you gotta work for it, unfortunately. And you're you're less likely to come across it by happenstance, and more if you seek it out. I see. So. 
thinking about Hughes Mellon and his contributions again a little bit more, for those who may not be as Baptist as us, or who are more tentatively Baptist, or maybe they're just not Baptist at all, which, of course, we welcome all denominations on this podcast, uh, we make it distinctively bad Baptist, partly just because we think a lot of Baptists don't think, and since we're Baptists, we want to encourage Baptists to think. Um, but that said, are there any contributions that non-Baptists would find Patrick Hughes Mellon made theologically that are useful or or worth engaging. And of course, when I'm saying non-Baptist, I'm also including those who are just not in the Southern Baptist Convention, considering Hughes Mel's or Hughes Mel was in the Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good question. I'm biased because I'm studying him, and I think that everybody should read and learn from him um, because there's just so much there. Um, I would say for, especially for, and I'm going to answer this as a, as a Southern Baptist, if you are in the Southern Baptist Convention, I think it's incredibly uh, foolish not to pay attention to our, uh, to our history. Um, and so we, we need to understand this, this man was one of the founders who was there um, at the commencement uh, when the Southern Baptist Convention was formed. Uh, he was one of the signers and he was um, 17 years. He served as the Southern Baptist Convention president. So just paying attention to what he has said and what he did, um, I think that that's just, that's just wise for us as Southern Baptists. But even for non-Southern Baptists, um, I wrote down a few statements that were made at the time of his death. Uh, the Foreign Mission Board, currently the IMB, uh, remarked that his words and acts were perhaps more thought of and more talked of than those of any Baptist in the United States. So at the time of his death, he was maybe the most talked of Baptist in the entire, in the entire U.S. in the 19th century. So if you are a non-Baptist, but you want to get a feel for what 18th uh, or 19th century uh, Baptist thought and theology was in, in the American South, Mel is very representative of that. And I think that that helps give you an idea of the way that Baptists thought, the way that uh, Southerners thought. Um, I didn't really want to open this can of worms, but he deals with the issue of slavery. Um, and so you can even look into the mind of a man who is defending the institution of slavery, even from the from the biblical um, from a biblical perspective, I, I think he got that wrong. I'll go ahead and say that, but I think that it's helpful to read and to understand the way that these men were thinking, the way that they were uh, working through and thinking through theology, and the way that they were uh, influencing uh, so many in the church in the South. Um, he, he he just very much epitomizes what it meant to be a nineteenth century um, Christian, um, and specifically a nineteenth century Baptist. Well, what's kind of interesting to me at this point, and I want to push on, is you mentioned Hughes Mel was being, I guess, pretty popular during his day, and yet he's kind of fallen out of favor, and he's not really as well known anymore. Do you know why that would be? Is that partly because of him actually putting pen to paper on slavery? You know, I, Dag, Boyce, guys like that, um, they're more popular, but maybe uh, is it Mel's actually kind of promoting and defending slavery that he's not really, I guess, popular in contemporary understanding and Baptist thought? Yeah, I think that that's one of the reasons. I, I certainly, um, I, I think you could say the same by, about a man like R.L. Dabney of the Presbyterian camp. He was I mean, just such an influential and uh, popular and great theologian, but he he missed the mark on slavery, and I think that that's kind of buried him in history. But I would say the same thing about Mel, but a couple of other things too. He never wrote a full uh, systematic um, the way that um, maybe somebody like Boyce or Dag did. And so those guys, their thought and theology is going to live on in the seminary world. It's going to uh, permeate through um, – 
the the next tradition, the next uh, generation of pastors. And so I think that that's part of the the issue there. And then the, the thing that I'm arguing in my dissertation is that Mel has often been pulled apart um, because he wrote, again, he didn't write a full systematic. So he wrote specifically on salvation or on um, on slavery and mainly on the church. And so what happens is authors have pulled him apart and just used him to make a point to say, hey, look, this is how Baptists thought about this. Or, hey, look, here's another guy who defended slavery. Um, hey, look, here's another guy who defended predestination. And he's just kind of, he's stretched so thin that we forget the influence that he had as a whole. And I think it's easy to do that when we, we want to make a point, um, whatever that might be historically, and we're going to build our case by putting all the guys on, on one side of the, of the fence that we can. And what happens is we end up kind of flattening out their thought and forgetting all the contributions that they make as a whole. Okay, that's good. So now I want to ask you, I don't know how familiar you are with analytic theology in general. I know you're very familiar with confessional theology, but when you think about Hughes Mel, would he have any opinion on analytic theology and confessional theology? Are either of these useful? Are they good tools to be preserving and be promoting? Yeah, I, I was thinking about this question. I listened to um, you guys discuss these things, and, and I, th- I find it fascinating. So I've, I've very much enjoyed learning from you on this. I don't think that Mel would would be um, in line with analytic theology, um, probably just because it, it wasn't that wasn't typical of his generation. It wasn't typical of Baptist orthodoxy of the time, at least not uh, in the way that I would understand it today. Um, and I could certainly be wrong on that, but that's my, that's my hunch. Uh, but I would definitely argue that he was highly confessional. Um, Mel's actually, actually Mel's is, is interesting. His education, um, his formal education was cut short. His dad um, died when he was 14, I believe. His mom died shortly thereafter. He was the oldest male of his siblings. So he had to begin taking care of his siblings at a very young age. And so he didn't have the type of formal training that many others did. He didn't get to go to Princeton. He didn't get to uh, experience a lot of the um, preparation for ministry that many of his contemporaries did. Uh, so Mel had to, had to learn a lot on his own. And um, I found in my studies that his mother brought him up on the Westminster Shorter Catechism. That's what he, that's what he grew up um, understanding his mother was a congregationalist. And that's a good mom. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm wondering, I'm wondering why my mom couldn't have done the same for me. <laughs> well, um, I hope she's not listening but, to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, we could have that discussion, me and my mom. Um, so, so yeah, so he, he grew up hearing confessional theology. Um, and then even in, in his writings, he's quoting the Savoy declaration. He's, he's quoting the Westminster confession of faith. He, he quotes the Philadelphia Confession, and which is, of course, as you guys know, the, the Americanized 1742 version of the 1689 from England. He, he very much understands confessional theology. And it is, I'm making the argument in my writing that it's those confessional statements in chapter three and in chapter six about God's divine decrees and about the providence of God, that that undermines and drives all of Mel's theology as a whole. So he is highly confessional in his theology. Okay, TJ, so you've answered that question. What I want to hear from you now is if you were to have a conversation with Patrick Hughes Mel, you put him in a time machine, you bring him to the current day, and he were to see the current state of Baptist, the current state of the Southern Baptist Convention, I, and I know you know everybody's a man of their own time, so there, there's you know discrepancies here, 
But I really want to know is what do you think Usmel would say to current Baptists had he been able to maybe address this other convention this coming year for 15 minutes? What do you think he would tell us? Uh, what would her, his thoughts be on the current state of Baptist life? Yeah, I, I think that's a fascinating thought. Um, a, cu- a couple of things come to mind when you ask that. Uh, first of all, and and feel free to cut me off if I need to if I need to pull it back here. But I would I would say that Mel would be um, disappointed in the convention as a whole and in Southern Baptist broadly um, because when he when he ventured into the pastorate at a particular church um, in one of those small towns in Mel's kingdom in Georgia, he lamented as he observed that the church was drifting off into Arminianism, as he would say. And uh, he wanted to bring them back to the tenets of particular Baptist theology and pull them back into understanding the depths of the gospel um, from a more Calvinistic perspective. And so he would lament the trajectory of the convention over the past however many decades away from that. That would be my first thought. Um, I I would say, secondly, he would be... um, he would be amazed at our lack of, of understanding of church membership. Um, his, his, his perception of the local church and, and very much the 19th century mindset was that church membership was a, um, it was not a right, but it was a duty. Um, it wasn't something that you, it wasn't like a Costco membership that you just, you get access to all these different things and yeah, I become a member and now I get catered to rather Membership was something that meant, hey, I now want accountability. I want to be serving. I want to be somebody to be willing to discipline me. I want um, somebody pouring into me and and walking alongside of me. And it was it was a duty. There there came something along with that uh, that you bring to a local church. Um, and then alongside of that, the lack of church discipline. Again, I'm speaking broadly. Uh, Mel would just think that that's absurd. Um, why in the world would we have local gatherings where we are not holding one another accountable, where we're not upholding the law of God um, within our, our local bodies, and where we're not willing to compromise feelings for the good of the people who need to be disciplined? Um, and so I think that he would look at, at Southern Baptist right now, and especially, I mean, he, like I said, he was a rural, small town pastor for many of these, but, but especially like where I live, mega church city, like he would just look at that and go, I, I don't, I don't understand what in the world we're doing here. Um, so I think he would be very frustrated and very confused at the way that uh, Southern Baptist life has tended. Um, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm speaking out of place there, but that's, uh, that's, my, that's my perception. So, TJ, you mentioned that Hughes Mel kind of lamented the drift toward Arminianism and Baptist life at that point. And, and not to make everything about Calvinism and Arminianism by any means, you know, I've got great friends and brothers and sisters who are Arminians. I used to be an Arminian, for goodness sake. Uh, but Hughes Mel, what, what do you think his thoughts were on the, I guess, necessity of Calvinism in, in Baptist life or its place in Baptist life? Uh, is there a role for that? Were there a lot of Calvinists? Should there be a lot of Calvinists? Should there not be Calvinists? What, what, tell me about that. Yeah, that's that's a great that's a great question. Um, for for Mel, I th- I find this fascinating as I read Mel. He frequently makes the statement about the Baptist view on whatever it might be. 
um, he, he will speak of the Baptist understanding of the Lord's Supper and of close communion, even though within Baptist, there was has always been disagreement. There's always been discussion about what type of interaction we should have with non-members of our church or with other denominations on the issue. But he speaks of the Baptist view. And he spoke the same way of the Baptist view of the issues of Arminianism and Calvinism. And for Mel, the prevailing thought was Baptist historically, and certainly at his time, affirmed the Calvinistic perspective. For for Mel, to be Baptist was to be Calvinist. Um, he, he viewed the a denominational uh, leaning away from Calvinism as drifting off into Arminianism, but he, w- he would align that with like Methodist theology for him. That would not be Baptist. He would say to be Baptist would be to affirm the, the, the Philadelphia Confession or the Westminster Confession. Uh, well, I guess the 1689, but, but certainly soteriologically in regards to salvation, he would want to affirm the Westminster's language, the Savoy's language on the issues of predestination, the issues of God's sovereignty, of God's decrees, uh, of God's providence, of the eternal security of the believer based on divine election, those concepts. So for Mel, that was that was part and parcel. That was normal Baptist thought and theology, and anything away from that was diverting from the historical way of thinking for uh, the Southern Baptist man. Now, I'm sure that's probably shocking to some who are not as in, in tune with older historic understandings of Baptist thought, um, but... We'd love to talk more about that, but we do have to go ahead and move towards signing off. And I don't want to miss the chance to kind of get uh, some book recommendations from you, TJ. So you've already discussed a little bit about Patrick Hughes Mel Hughes Mel's work. I'll just go with the mailman. Uh, why don't you go ahead and give us some just general, broad Baptist theology recommendations that you say we've got to read this, or we've got to read that, because uh, I think you're the man on Baptist history to talk to. Uh, yeah, um, great question. Couple, couple of my favorite Baptist history books. Um, Shoot, Finn, and Haken have a, a very accessible, um, abridged version of the Baptist, of Baptist history called the Baptist Story. I think that's a great place to start. Um, really, it, it's I think it was published in 2015, so um, it was very well done. I think if you want to dive into a, a little bit bigger, uh, a little bit more broad. Um, and I think really well done as well is Macbeth's work uh, called The Baptist Heritage. Uh, that's like 700 pages. Probably don't want to sit down on the weekend and try to devour that thing. Um, but rather, it just it, it becomes a really helpful resource to understand different seasons of and stages of Baptist thought. I think that's really helpful. Uh, James Leo Garrett has a, a work on Baptist theology, kind of does the same thing, but focuses on um, the theologian. So those are probably my favorite three, just broad speaking. How do I access Baptist history? Um, those would be the three I would go to. And then if you're interested in Mel, if you're interested in his time period, you have to read his contemporaries. You have to read Dag and Boyce. Um, so Dag has his manual of theology, manual of church order, uh, Boyce's abstract of systematic theology. Those two are off my bookshelf more than they're on it. Um, they're really, really good resources. Um, very um, I think indicative of, of Southern Baptist thought, um, especially especially Boyce. Boyce is going to speak for Southern Baptist a lot. And um, so really helpful works and really good um, perspective for history 
that is um, that has come before us. Good stuff on the recommendations. I encourage all our listeners to check those things out. Now, for those listeners who want to get in contact with you, who want to follow you, uh, where can they go? We know you're doing the Reformed Informants podcast, so we encourage our listeners to check you out there. But where else can they find you? Yeah, I'm on uh, I'm on Instagram and Twitter, uh, TJ Darty Eleven um, at TJ Darty Eleven on both of those forums. Um, and then you know, if you if you want to get in touch, you can always go through the Reformed Informants uh, podcast. We have the the page there. We have a, a YouTube channel. We've got uh, we've got Instagram and Twitter and email and all those things. So uh, anybody that wants to keep up with uh, or wants to have a conversation regarding uh, Southern Baptist life um, now and 19th century, wants to discuss systematic theology, I'm I'm all for it. I, I, I've if anybody's listening to you guys then I know that they are interested in the same things I am because I love what you guys are putting out and I'm so thankful to be a part of this. So yeah, if anybody's interested, uh, would love to chat theology, um, love to discuss anything. So come, come check me out. And now I know you blog too, don't you? I do. Yes. I'm on, uh, the majestiesmen.com. So if you go to the majestiesmen.com backslash TJ Darty, you'll find, uh, you'll find my blog, uh, theology matters. Um, and that's where I, I, unfortunately in this season of life, I'm, I'm less, uh, I, I'm, I have less time to blog, uh, right now, but when I am able to, that's, that's a, a great joy to be able to write, uh, to be able to publish a few things and interact with people that way. So, well, we, we've had a blast having you on TJ. We're very thankful that you took the time out of your day, especially with uh, your young daughter, uh, to talk with us about Patrick Hughes Mel. I think we've all learned a lot about him. Uh, we probably now are wanting to be a part of the Mailman Club. So keep us updated on what's happening with Hughes Mel. I hope you publish on him more and write on him more because I think he's a fascinating figure. Uh, that said, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist confessional podcast that exists uh, at this current moment. Hopefully, we inspire others so maybe my tagline won't be uh, true anymore at some point but until then i'll continue to use it so i hope you all stay thinking my friends and have a great rest of your day